0: As we do turn to our study of the Gospel of Matthew, I want to consider really the glory of Christ displayed through his awesome power. Now, we understand as Christians that Jesus of Nazareth is truly and completely man, as well as truly and completely God. He possesses two natures in one. Church history has always borne witness to that truth. Now, all throughout the Gospels, we see him living life on earth as a man. We see him walking and talking. He eats, he sleeps, he works, he sweats, he even bleeds. Seeing Jesus as a man is really not difficult for us because we can identify humanly with the person of Christ in his humanity. However, when we begin to comprehend him as God, that is when things become very interesting. Because frankly, we cannot comprehend God we can understand what he reveals to us. We see his power displayed in nature. We, we sort of feel his presence and hear his voice in our conscience as he's born witness of himself in our conscience, according to Romans chapter 2. We see him displayed in his word. But really, to wrap my arms around all that who God is, I can't fathom. And I bear that none of us can fathom that as well. To fully comprehend him, John 1 says, No one has ever seen God the Father, but Jesus has made him known. And so, we certainly cannot comprehend God without what he has revealed in his word. That is the truest sense by which we know him. And when we study the Bible, we begin to understand that there are several key attributes of God. An attribute is simply this. It's a feature or a quality that is characteristic of a person. Now, we also understand that God exists without parts, meaning that we don't dice God up into his different attributes, We understand that God is one. But we understand him in our humanness by these attributes. Let me give you examples. We understand his omniscience, that he knows all things. We understand his omnipresence, that he's spirit, that he's everywhere we are. We can never escape him. We understand him through his righteousness and his holiness, his justice and his mercy. We understand that as God, Jesus is, uh, shares these attributes with both the Father and with the spirit, and we read the events of the gospels, we get a small glimpse at the attributes of God displayed in the person of jesus christ and so this morning 's text matthew eight twenty three through twenty seven focuses on jesus 's awesome power over his creation. We read verses that speak about his power and his ability, for example, we read in Colossians 1, 16 and 17, that Christ himself is before all things. And I was sort of pleased to hear Mike actually reciting some of these verses. I didn't know he was going to do that, but it fits perfectly. My text here says, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And verse 17 in Colossians 1 says, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that not only has Jesus created all things, but He says He upholds all things by the word of His power. As Creator, He has made all things. And as the all-wise God, He understands and knows all that He has made. And as sovereign, He exerts power and authority over everything that belongs to Him, which, by the way, is everything. When Jesus speaks... His creation obeys. And this morning we're going to see an example of that. Again, Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 27. I'm titling the sermon, Christ's Power on the Water. If you're not already there, be, please be with me in Matthew chapter 8, verse 23. Continuing our narrative here. says, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. And they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. And the men were amazed and said, What kind of a man is this, that even the winds... And the sea obey him. Now this account appears both in Mark and in Luke. We also draw from those accounts today. I've said before, this is one of my favorite stories about Jesus' power, his ministry, probably in the Gospels. I think I preached this text in Mark last year sometime, but we're here again in Matthew's Gospel. I want to remember where we are in the context of Matthew, however, Jesus has delivered perhaps the greatest sermon in human history, recorded in Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And immediately after coming down from that sermon, from that mount, he is swarmed by a large crowd of people. We see that over and over again in the Gospels, where Jesus is constantly being inundated by the crowds. They're amazed at what they've heard, and as we progress in the narrative, we we see that they're amazed at what they observed and what they see. He amazes them by performing miracles of divine healing which authenticate His message. And we know He spends the whole day teaching and healing and at a certain point, He starts to get tired. He starts to get tired. And so He tells the disciples that He wants to get away, to rest for a little bit. And this is going to take them in a boat across the Sea of Galilee, probably about eight miles or so across the middle portion of that sea. However, before He leaves Uh, the shores of Capernaum, he is approached by no less than three people who are seeking to follow him, at which point he takes the opportunity to teach on, really, the true cost of discipleship. We looked at that last week, what it means and what it costs to follow Christ. And after doing so, he pulls away from the crowd. He's about to embark on this short trip that's going to take him just a couple hours by boat. And that's the point we pick it up in verse 23. They've left the shore, they're in the boat, they're crossing, it's nighttime, it's getting dark, it's going to take a couple hours to get there. There's a parallel account in Mark 4 that notes that all this is taking place on the same day. So the same day as the healings is the same day that he's crossing over, but now evening has come. Jesus and the disciples get into the boat and they cast off. Mark also adds something also interesting, that there are other boats with him. So it's not just this one boat with a couple of guys. There are several boats. There's kind of an entourage that is crossing together, heading across the Sea of Galilee at night. Verse 24, verse 24, it says, And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea. The Sea of Galilee is nestled at the base of a small mountain range. It's approximately 680 feet below sea level. And even today, it is not uncommon for intense wind gusts to cascade down the side of the slopes of the mountains and collide with the air current across the top of the water and creates a a very intense storm. And I've watched video and seen this. I've talked to people who've been there. And and you can get on a boat and you can go across this sea. And it's kind of like the atmosphere on Lake Erie. It's a large body of water. It can be tumultuous at times. But out of nowhere, these storms can arise very quickly because you can't predict how the airflow is going to go. They can produce swells of upwards of 6 to 10 feet, these waves on the water, certainly rocky enough to capsize a small boat. But what makes the climate even more difficult is that the storms, again, can come quickly without warning. This is happening, all of this, at night. So if you're already not having a good time with the storm on the water, when it's totally pitch black and you can't see anything, you don't know what's coming at you. It can be very terrifying. And that's what's happening here. It says there arose a great storm. A great storm. Both Mark and Luke record that it was a fierce gale, meaning that the winds were so violent, the waters were raging against the boat. More than simply rocking the boat back and forth, Matthew notes that the boat was being covered with the waves. So waves are, are, are capping and going over across the top of the boat itself. They're breaking up over into the boat. Mark adds so much that the boat began to fill up. So now the Sea of Galilee is swallowing up this boat, and water is coming up inside of this boat. Again, this boat is small enough to fit maybe about 12 people or so. a small group of fishermen, not a big boat at all. And the waves are capping over and filling the boat. Luke adds one more note: They begin to be swamped and were in danger. Middle of the night, storm is raging your boat is filling up, you're going to go down. I forgot to add that the depth of the sea, the deepest point at the Sea of Galilee, is about 200 feet. So if you go down, you go down all the way. This is terrifying, my friends. If the boat capsizes, they're all going to go overboard, in a storm, at night, all the way to the bottom. There's no way to escape. They know this. All of them have fished and been on this sea before. They know the danger. They know that they're all about to die if something doesn't happen. Now remember, Jesus is in the boat. And the question is, well, where is he? The text says, he's sleeping. He's sleeping. I love the, the stark contrast between what we see with the disciples and what we see with Jesus. But Jesus is sleeping. Mark adds that he's, been, he's in the back of the boat. He's on the stern. He's asleep on a cushion. There's a small cushion. He's sleeping on this cushion. After all, a, a full day of teaching and ministering, its enough to exhaust any person. And the question is, well, how tired do you have to be to sleep through the worst of a storm? But I would counter with a tongue-in-cheek question, how sovereign do you believe God is to be asleep on a cushion during a storm? And I would say, therefore, Jesus sleeps. But the disciples, they're not so relaxed. Look at verse 25. They came to him and woke him. Now, I want to pause here. They probably thought to themselves before they did this, I don't think we want to wake him. He's been teaching all day, he's exhausted. Don't you feel bad when someone has just given their all all day? You don't want to wake them up when they're sleeping. But they're terrified. They came to him and they woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Now, again, nobody wants to do this, but they're at a place where they have no choice. They have no choice. As far as they can tell, or as far as we can tell, I should say, at least seven of them were fishermen. Surely, one of them knew what to do. I don't know who the senior fisherman on the boat would have been. I think it's easy for us to say in our minds that, well, oh, it's certainly Peter, but it might have been John, it might have been anybody else that was well-versed in what to do in the midst of a storm. What do you do? Well, the answer is nobody. They didn't know what to do. There was no options. And The question is, how bad does a storm have to be for a boat full of professional fishermen to start to panic? How bad does it have to be? And I would venture a guess, pretty bad. And so they do. They wake Jesus. How do they wake Him? Do they wake Him the way that you and I want to be woke, woken up? Do they come and say, they touch Him very gently and say, Lord... I hate to bother you, but there's there's some danger. Did they give him that kind of moment? No. They wake him with screaming. Anybody been woken up by screaming before? It's not fun, is it? I'm having sense memories of last night, actually, my infant <laughs> son. <laughs> Pray for my wife if you get a chance. But they they wake him with screaming. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record different utterances from the disciples. And if you look at the parallel accounts, you stack all the accounts next to each other, there's different words. And you might think to yourself, well, which one is correct? I believe they're all correct. In Matthew, it says, save us, Lord, we're perishing. So somebody in the group said, save us, Lord, we're perishing. We're going to die. Luke records, someone says, master, master, we are perishing. Same kind of a thing. And it's Mark's account that has me convinced, however... That's my son. (laughs) Mark's account convinces me that all the disciples are, in fact, yelling and screaming together totally unhinged because one of them says, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Think about that phrase for a second. Think about that accusation in the midst of panic. Not only is it, we're going to die, we're going to die, but do you not care that we're going to die? Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? This is not a rational response to the threat. This is a a visceral, emotional reaction to what is perceived to be a life or death situation. They're not thinking logically. They're not thinking uh, compassionately. They're not thinking reasonably. And so the disciples at this point, according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're all losing their minds in fear and in terror. And how does Jesus respond? It says he gets up. Now Mark and Luke record a different sequence of events than Matthew. It's possible that Mark and Luke aren't worried about the sequence as much textually as they're in their Gospels. And they want to focus more on the miracle. That's certainly true. We don't really know their editorial reasons for why they order the events the way that they do. It's possible that Jesus speaks, however, before and after the miracle. Matthew records what's said before, and Luke and Mark record what's spoken afterwards. That's certainly possible. But here's how Matthew sets it out. He records this reply to their panic. Immediately he says this in verse 26. He says to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Scholars have noted the sense of the phrase in the Greek grammar, why are you afraid? That's not really a question. He doesn't get up out of his slumber and say, "Oh, that's interesting. I wonder why you're afraid right now." Let's talk about this. Why, what, what's got you troubled, guys? That's not the nature of his question. Rather, it's it's an accusation. It's a rebuke. A sense of, the sense of it is, "Why are you so cowardly? Why are you afraid right now?" Again, he's just been startled awake. Why are you worried? Why are you afraid? as the boat is rocking and capsizing. After seeing the example upon example of people coming to Christ in full faith to be healed, over and over again, all through the chapter, in chapter 8, we see all these people swarming to Jesus, hearts full and bursting of faith, so much so that the centurion says, Lord, even if you speak a word from far away, my servant will be healed. And Jesus marvels and he says, I've never seen such faith in all of Israel. I have to go to a centurion, a a Roman, a Gentile to see this kind of faith, which is also an attack on their faith. But after seeing that kind of faith all day long, he turns to his own disciples and says, why are you afraid? Where is your faith? He says, oh, men of little faith, why is your faith so small right now? And after he says this, in the very next moment, Matthew records that Jesus gets up And he rebukes the wind and the sea. And Mark records what he actually says. He says this phrase Hush, be still. The Lord speaks to the creation and says, Quiet down. That's the sense of it. Just be quiet. And as soon as he says that, Matthew records, And it became perfectly calm. The wind ceased, the waves settled the waters became still, perfectly calm. I mean, it's not a matter of the wind just sort of eventually dying down and a couple minutes later it sort of levels off. Immediately, it becomes perfectly calm, like a sea of glass across the top of the water. Just like with Jesus' divine healings, the effect of His power is both instant and complete. With one word, the danger is gone and their lives are saved and it's at this point that Mark and Luke both record that he turns to them and he says, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? He accuses them before he does anything. Why, why do you have such little faith? And after they see everything that just takes place, he turns and says, why do you still have no faith? Now, I don't believe he's making a theological judgment that they have zero faith. But he's, he's accusing them. What, what, what's going on? Why do you not trust me? Why do you have no faith here? It's not hard to imagine across the entire top of the water, all these boats, they all saw the exact same thing. They're sitting in their boats just in awe of what happened, dumbfounded. And Luke even records that he says this Where is your faith? Where is your faith? After rebuking the creation outside the boat, he he turns and rebukes the creation inside the boat and tells them what they're supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be trusting him. How do they respond? Do they respond by making excuses? Well, well, teacher, we we were going to die. We don't know what to do. Do they respond in repentance? Lord, you're right. We're sorry that we didn't trust you. How do they respond? Mark records this, then they became very much afraid. More afraid than when they were in the storm. Now, remember, in the storm, they were losing their minds, thinking irrationally, terrified. They were becoming unhinged during the storm. They became much more afraid after because of what they've seen. And their initial fears, we read, then turns to something else. It turns to amazement. Look at verse 27. The men were amazed and said, What kind of a man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? The Greek word used here is thaumadzo, means astonished or amazed or literally it's struck. They're, They're awestruck in the moment. Why are they amazed? Because Jesus had introduced them to a whole new level of glory. See, up to that point, everything that they had seen had been more localized and more personal. Someone would come to him and in the intimacy of the moment, he would talk to them and he would heal them and they would leave and they'd walk away. And then he would really amaze them because then he would heal you know, someone at a distance. And again, more localized, more specific, a lot more private. Healing a disease turning jars of water into wine. I mean, they were kind of scratching their head at that one. But this, my friends, this is a whole new category. This is not David Copperfield you know, rotating a stage to give his audience sort of a, a controlled view. No, this is the Lord God exerting authority over all of the creation around them. Everything they can see and everything that they cannot see. This is absolute power over the created order. This is astonishing. R.C. Sproul writes this, Jesus controlled the fierce forces of nature by the sound of His voice. He didn't say a prayer. He didn't ask the Father to deliver them from the tempest. He dealt with the situation directly. He uttered a command, a divine imperative, and instantly nature obeyed. The wind heard the voice of its Creator. The sea recognized the command of its Lord. There was no intercessory anything. This was direct power from the person of Christ to what He'd made. You have to see this. This is more than just Christ being a mediator. This is more than just Him being a a rabbi or a prophet or some kind of a servant. This is him acting as God over all he's made. This is astonishing. And for the disciples, they can't make any sense of this. This goes beyond what they were prepared to accept in knowing Jesus. Because again, normal people don't do this. This is not normal. Furthermore, other men who have exerted authority over nature, men like, for example, Moses or Elijah They've done so only by the authority of God. They go directly to God and say, Lord, will you do this? I'm thinking about Exodus 14. It's very clear that the people of Israel, they were, it was clear to the people of Israel that it was God that was saving them. Moses was just the middleman. They knew that it was God parting the waters and doing this thing. They didn't look to Moses and say, wow, good job, Moses. They were astonished at the power of God. Same thing with Elijah. Elijah does a similar kind of a thing. He crosses over the Jordan, and he he hits the water with his mantle, and the thing parts. But again, this is not by his own inherent power. Nobody believed it was Elijah himself. They all knew that it was coming from God. He was just the middleman. But here, Jesus doesn't function in that way. Jesus exerts his own inherent power and authority over what he's made. It's a, a whole new category, friends. This is different than any other miracle in the Old Testament. It's different than anything else that the disciples have done later on in their ministries. This is pure power, pure authority from the only one who truly possesses both. In this way, he's even greater than Moses and Elijah. But the men, they can't comprehend this. They can't fathom this kind of thing. This blows their minds. They don't even know what to say. But this is what they do say. What kind of a man is this? What kind of a man is this? Who does this? Who is this man who utters one word, he just says, shush! And the winds and the sea obey him. What is that? Who does that? Who is in our boat right now? Can you fathom that? who's been sleeping in the back of my boat? Who's been eating at my dinner table? Who is this? I mean, can you just picture what's going through their minds right now? Because again, the disciples had grown a respectful fear for the awesome power of the sea. They understood the sea. Now, they couldn't comprehend all of what the sea was, but at least they kind of knew. When it does this, watch out. When it comes this way, watch out. We don't go out during this time. We come in during this time. They had a handle on what the sea was. They could get that. And while they couldn't tame the sea, they could at least understand the sea. But here, not one of them could understand this. This doesn't make any sense. Who is this? Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? In Psalm 89, the Davidic covenant is portrayed... As the writer begins to sing the goodness and the loving kindness of God, I just want to read these verses for you in Psalm 89. He says, I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. To all generations I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. For I have said loving kindness will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. I have made a covenant with My chosen. I have sworn to David My servant. I will establish Your seed forever and build up Your throne to all generations. Selah. The heavens will praise Your wonders, O Lord. Your faithfulness also in the assembly of the Holy Ones. For who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord? a God greatly feared in the council of the Holy Ones, and awesome above all who are around Him. O Lord God of hosts, who is like You, O mighty Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds You. You rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, You still them. Who is this? Who is this? Who is able to rule the swelling of the sea? Who is able to still the waves as they arise? The Lord God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of heaven and earth. The God of all creation. The God of salvation and redemption. That's who. And He evidences this identity, this power, this... Title even here. And they say, what kind of a man is this? That even the winds and the seas obeys Him. The only God-man, Jesus Christ. The disciples were beholding more than simply a man wielding some power. They were beholding the glory of Christ. And it terrified them. And they stood in awe and amazement of this glory. And they were struck with terror the way that Isaiah was when he saw the heavenly throne room. He was struck and he fell down in repentance. They were overwhelmed like Daniel was when he beheld this glory. They were mortified like Manoah when he says, I've seen the Lord, I'm going to go die now. Same kind of terror, same kind of awe. The same Jesus who had No shelter from the elements, in verse 20, unlike the foxes and the birds, yet He is the same Jesus who commands those elements, in verses 26 and 27. I fear all too often that we are over-eager to identify with the humanity of Jesus at the expense of worshiping Him as God. We read a lot of popular books today that really try to, to sort of bring Jesus down to our level and on some level, that's good, because you do need to understand the humanity of Christ. If you don't understand the humanity of Christ, you don't know Jesus Christ. After all, He is our great high priest who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses, and yet He has no sin, according to Ephes- Excuse me, Hebrews 4.15. But when we're in the storms of life, we need to see that Christ is with us and understands our pain. It's good for us to see Him in His humanity because we know He's gone before us. I can identify with Him person to person because He's he's the second Adam, the greater Adam. But let me ask, do you know what breaks through the fears and doubts? you know what conquers you over and against your faithlessness? It is the glory of Christ. It is the power of Christ. It is the Godness of Christ. Yes, see Him as man. He's truly man. But we also must see Him as God and truly God. In every possible way. There's no one like Him. We need to understand that Jesus is the singular person who has the power and authority to save us in any storm. There's direct application for us here. I think it's prophetic that the disciples cry out this phrase, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. It's truer than they think. In the moment, they were temporal. Save us, we're going to die here. But the true cry of every sinner that needs to be saved is that same thing. Save us, Lord, we are perishing. For them, they only knew that they needed immediate rescue. They knew that there was an intense danger right there. But they had no idea that their cry would be the cry of all who would come to Christ for eternal salvation. Not physical salvation, but a spiritual salvation. And not a windstorm, but the storm of God's fierce judgment against the sinner. And the dying sinner is one who heeds the warning and cries out to God, Save me, Lord, I am perishing. And for all you who are in Christ, you understand what I'm talking about. That there's a certain point in your life when you recognize that you're in this storm. And the storm is God's wrath. And what's going to happen to you in the boat, so to speak? Well, it is my sin that has caused this storm. It is my sin that makes me an enemy of God. I've broken His law. I've broken His commands. I don't stand righteous before God. And His fierce wrath and anger is going to bear down against me in my sin. And so therefore, the only thing you can do, you can't say, well, I'm going to muscle up under this storm. I can handle this kind of a storm that's capsizing you. We don't think that way. We don't respond that way. If you really understand the righteous anger of God, you don't grapple with that. It terrifies us, doesn't it? Because I can't stand before a holy God on my own. And so the only response that you can have is, save me. Have mercy. Save me, Lord, because I am perishing. I'm dying in my own sin. I'm dying at the hands of a just God. Save us, Lord. And how does He save us? The Christ who calms the storm and the wind he also stands in our place at the cross. Jesus, as we're going to read as we progress through this Gospel, goes to the cross, is nailed there. and God's judgment, a torrential flood is poured out on Him instead of us. He stands as our substitute because God in His loving kindness has sent Jesus Christ to come into the world to save and to take the place of sinners. And with one word, as He calmed the storm and said, Hush, be still. With one word, He calms the storm and rescues us who are perishing and utters this one phrase, It is finished. And that calms the storms of God's judgment against us. He saves us. He redeems us and buys us back. And now, as Romans 5 says, we have peace with God. You can have peace with God through Jesus Christ. No more storm, no more fierce wrath, no more anger. God actually adopts you as a beloved son, a firstborn son, and gives you all the rights and privileges of that. He brings you into his own family and adopts you and seats us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's a tremendous blessing. It's an honor that we don't deserve. I certainly don't deserve it. Jesus dies in our place and offers forgiveness and salvation for all who would trust in Him, to all who would have faith. And I would even apply us to this story, or apply the story to our life, I would say, and ask the question, are you drowning in sin and despair? I don't know what you're coming here this morning with, Maybe you're perishing in the way. Maybe you look okay on the outside, but inside you're drowning and storms of grief and waves of fear and anxiety. Maybe your sinfulness is hijacking you and destroying you and eating you alive and there's no escape. Are you feeling the weight of the judgment of God against you if you don't get right with Him? Put your faith in Christ. Listen to His words. Why do you have no faith? And the implication is that you should have faith. You should trust Him because that's the right thing to do. To put your life, to put your security, to put your safety, to put your whole existence in His capable hands. The same God who calms the seas and the storms is the same God who's able to save you. Trust Him. Believe in Him. He's more than able. Confess your sins to Him. Find your salvation in His life. I want to look at one passage together in Psalm 107. Turn in your Bible to Psalm 107. I think this will help us again to frame all of this. The New Testament does not exist by itself. The New Testament is built on the back of the Old Testament. And all that is concealed, if you would, in the Old Testament, is revealed in the New, and it's revealed through the lens of Jesus Christ. Psalm 107 was written is really an ancient hymn. It was written somewhere between 800 and 1,000 years before Christ. And the theme of Psalm 107 is the goodness of God, the goodness of God. And really there are four main stanzas that picture groups of people who have this sort of interaction, this relationship with God, and whom He has saved from their distress and destruction. But I want to look specifically at this fourth group. It's the fourth stanza in this hymn. It's verses 23 to 32. 23 to 32. So I'm in Psalm 107, starting in verse 23. Those who go down to the sea in ships... Who do business on great waters, they have seen the works of the Lord and His wonders in the deep. For He spoke and raised up a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up like to the heavens, they went down to the depths. Their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like a drunken man and were at their wits' end. And they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He brought them out of their distress. He caused the storm to be still, so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they were quiet. So He guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for His loving kindness, and for His wonders to the sons of men. Let them extol Him also in the congregation of the people and praise Him at the seat of the elders. That's, this is a commentary on what happens in Matthew's Gospel written a thousand years before it took place. With incredible detail. It's also interesting that when Jesus is speaking to them, just a little footnote here. He says, why are you afraid, you men of little faith. He doesn't call them friends, brothers, disciples, my students. He says, you men of little faith. But back in Psalm 107, verse 31, he says, let us give thanks to the Lord for His loving kindness and His wonders to the sons of men. I believe it's an allusion even to this, this imagery, that all that took place on that stormy sea that night was to picture and, prefig- or I should say, not prefigure, but fulfill, if you will, what we even see here. The storm didn't just happen. No, God brought that storm and shook their boat and filled it with water to the point where they became terrified. Why? Why did God bring that storm? So that He could display His glory. Is there any storm, my friends, that God does not bring about? Is He not sovereign over all things? There are difficult seasons in life, aren't there? We've had difficult seasons even recently. For many of us, I'll just be honest with you, the last two weeks, I've seen crazy things going on. Many people in crisis. Many people struggling, whether it's their health, whether it's their relationships, whether they're concerned about what's happening politically, socially, whatever it may be. But here's the thing, I believe that everybody right now is being hit somewhere. All of us are being taxed and driven to the end of ourselves. The Lord has a way of sort of cutting through and getting in between the the crevices of our armor to hit us at a weak point. To remind us of our humanness. To remind us even of our fallenness. To to wipe out the legs from underneath us until we have nowhere to stand. God brings about storms. Now by the means of this, the evil does not belong to God. He's not the author of evil. But He sovereignly superintends everything that happens. And he's Lord of all things. Satan can't do anything without the Lord's permission. Read Job. But the temptation for us is to panic. The temptation for us is to become unhinged. And to lose our minds. And to freak out. Say, Lord, what are you doing? Why are you doing this to me? Why is this all happening? And you just become unglued. But God is chastening His church. And I believe he's certainly chastening our church, and that's a good thing. It's good. It's good when God brings the trials. The trials themselves are not fun. There's no joy inherent in the trial. But James 1 says that we, when we see these trials coming on, we are to rejoice. Because we can identify in our minds and in our hearts that we know that God is doing something. He's bringing about this trial to grow our faith, to increase our dependence on Him so that we stand in awe of Him and look to Him for our salvation. Lord, if I'm going to survive at all, it's because You uphold me. If You're going to survive anything right now, it's not because You're so great and You have all the the spiritual fortitude to lift Yourself up. I'm doing good this year. I, I would gather that many of us are not doing great this year. For some of you, it might have been the last several years. For some, even decades. For some of you, you're about to enter the worst trial of your life, perhaps. But God is God, and He is in the business of saving people. Saving people. I want to encourage you, wherever you are, whatever is going on, whatever is about to go on, whatever has happened. Don't panic. Don't lose your mind. Don't freak out. Don't just assume it. This is the end and God's given up and we're just going to all die. Because you hear that all over the place, don't you? Don't panic. Don't be erratic. And don't fear. God is chastening His bride. He's disciplining us for godliness. He's using all of these trials, all of this difficulty, to squeeze us in to cut off the dead limbs that are in us and on us, to conform us to the image of Christ. In the end, He wants us to be stronger in Him. He wants our faith to grow in Him. And He's going to use everything that He wants to use to bring that about. And when you get to the end of your life, and you're standing at the gates of glory, will you not be thankful for the storms of life that have driven you to to Him alone? I read story after story. I read a lot of Christian biography, Christian church history. I would encourage you to do the same. And you get to see how God has used seemingly tumultuous circumstances in the lives of His faithful to drive them to trust in Him. Every time without fail. I've never read a story of a faithful believer who's had an easy life. I've never read it. Never seen it. No, He brings us through adversity. He chastens us. He disciplines us. Not because He hates us, but because He loves us. Because He desires to grow us and to sanctify us and to conform us to His image. So let me plead with you. Don't fight Him. Don't fight Him. Don't stiff arm. Don't push back. Don't get angry. Trust Him. He is the sovereign Lord who calms the seas and raises the dead. And He can save and protect and sanctify you for your good and for His glory. Father in heaven, we thank You for Your loving kindness to us. God, there are so many things that are happening, and and Father, You're the God of history. You've seen this before. There's always seasons where it just seems like things are difficult. Whether on a global scale or a very personal scale. And Father, I know just from what I have observed as your servant here, just the trials that many are enduring. Trials that are bringing people to the very brink of who they are. And I would ask you and plead with you, Lord, to show mercy. And lift them up on wings like eagles, and deliver them, Lord, in their distress. And Father, you will chasten to the degree that you desire to, because you know our hearts and our souls better than we do. And Lord, even though we are struck down, as Paul says, we are not destroyed, that you will sustain those you love. And so God, I thank you. I thank you earnestly that You are growing Your church. You are chastening us and You are trimming away our pride, our arrogance, our self-sufficiency, sinful patterns in us, our anger, our hatred, whatever it may be, that You're trimming those things away and strengthening us in the inner man to trust You. And so, Lord, I pray that as we're in this boat, as it were, that you would help us, that you would give us and grow our faith for your glory. Thank you for being a God that we can trust. You are ever trustworthy. You are sovereign. You are holy. You are righteous. And you are just. And you will glorify your name because it is worthy of glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.